What if you had a guide who could tell you how to bridge a gap between who you are today and who you're destined to be? What if each week you could hear a story of someone who has tried and succeeded, or perhaps tried and failed, but learned something in the process? Limitless Spirit is a weekly podcast where host Helen Todd interviews guests about topics and personal stories on defining life's purpose, pursuing personal growth, and developing a deeper faith in Christ. In every conversation about marriage and family, whether it's reproductive technologies or divorce or who should be on a child's birth certificate, I mean, every single conversation was obsessively focused on adults and the children got no voice. The only time the kids were mentioned is if they loved it. That's it. And only as trinkets to affirm what the adults were already doing or wanted to pursue. Kids have lost their parents to tragedy all through the human experience, right? Like we have a lot of familiarity with kids losing their parents to tragedy. But these days in the cultural conversation and in the legal conversation, we are now insisting, incentivizing and encouraging mother and father loss and doing it in the name of progress. And that's an injustice. That's something that I think that all adults, especially Christians, have got to stand against. Welcome to the Limitless Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Todd. There are not many people who would disagree with the statement that children should be protected in a society and should have rights. But what are those rights that are the most beneficial to children is a subject of much discussion and argument. As a result, children today across the world are in greater danger than ever. My guest on this week's episode is the founder and director of the children's rights organization, Them Before Us. Katie Faust is a mom of four children, one of whom was adopted. She has worked at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world and has 20 years of experience in youth ministry. Her personal experience of being raised by divorced parents, one of whom was involved in a homosexual relationship, and her observation of the needs of children of different backgrounds led her to the conclusion of what is the most basic fundamental right of a child and how we can ensure this as a society. In this episode, you will hear why Katie, in spite of her unconventional upbringing, is thankful to her parents. She will also share about the culture trends that are the most harmful to children and what is the best way to protect them. I believe this is an important conversation, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Limitless Spirit podcast. Good morning, Katie. Thank you for joining the Limitless Spirit podcast. It's so great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to talk with your audience today. Well, I'm very interested in your organization, and it's more than just organization. It's a movement called Them Before Us. And I have to admit that this is new, so I am not very familiar, and so let's just get to know each other. I know a little bit of your story. I did my homework, so let's talk about you a little bit. You are a mom. You're a pastor's wife, and you have an interesting story of growing up, and my understanding it is essentially impacted your work, your cause. So let's talk about your story first. 
Yeah, it's not quite as sensational as what Google will tell you. If you put my name into the search bar, you know, you'll get returns like woman raised by lesbians is a champion for traditional marriage or something like that. And so the story is more that my parents were married until I was 10. Then they divorced. Then I split time between my mom and my dad. My dad dated and remarried. My mom repartnered with a woman and they've been together ever since. So I split time between my dad's home and my mom's home. I love my mom and dad. Uh, They both had critical influences on my life. And I love my mom's partner. I don't consider my mom's partner a mom, but I do consider her my friend. And so that really is the only relevant aspect of my backstory to the work that I'm doing now. And it's not necessarily that I'm a child who was raised fatherless or that had two moms. It really is just saying you can support traditional marriage based on children's rights and needs to be known and loved by their mother and father. And you can do that 100% without animus and while loving the people in your life who identify as gay and lesbian. Um, So after I got married, I also worked at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. And so I've got um, a background of adoption and understanding the why adoption is a critical institution that supports the well-being of children. Um, Then I became a mom um, to three biological children, and then I became a mom to an adopted child. I've done youth ministry for about 20 years, and so I've talked to a lot of kids who have suffered a lot of family breakdown and understand the pain of mother and father loss. And now I'm also a pastor's wife where I do a lot of marriage counseling and talking with adults who are struggling with infertility um, and dealing with and shepherding adults who experience same-sex attraction. And so I feel like I've kind of seen this issue of marriage and family from all different angles, from the child's perspective, from my own perspective as a child, from working with kids who have, you know, suffered family breakdown, from loving and shepherding adults who have dealt with all of these challenges, you know, as adults. So The overall message is children have a right to their mother and father. Adults need to conform to that right. And that just means that adults, all adults need to do hard things and put them, the children, before us, the adults, in all matters of marriage and family. Well, this is very interesting. I think that your story definitely makes you a very competent person to champion the rights of the children and and champion the traditional family. And I do feel that it is very important in the Christian circles to foster that understanding that we don't focus. There is no hatred. There is no animosity towards people. We are fighting for institution not of marriage, not against people. And also, you know, I think it's a very great perspective that we have to put the rights of the children before our own. If we want to have children, we have to recognize that they come with the responsibility. I'm a mom too. And as parents, we know that, you know, the children are eternal responsibility that you never really give up and you have to put their rights first before they can protect their own rights. And so you kind of answered my my next question a little bit, but I'm still going to ask, was there a particular incident or story that inspired you to start this movement? No, not a particular story. It was mainly just that I saw the narrative, especially around the conversation about marriage when we were debating gay marriage. When I saw that, number one, they were lying about children. You know, they were saying kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads. 
And I'm like, okay, that means kids don't care if they've lost their mom or dad. I've worked with a lot of kids who have hurt, been hurt in a lot of ways by the loss of their parent. And it's very hard to find something that cuts a deeper wound in a child's heart and soul than losing their mom or dad or being rejected by their mom or dad or not having the full loving relationship they deserve from their mom or dad. So that was probably the main thing that got me into speaking about all of this. And then just really recognizing that in every conversation about marriage and family, whether it's reproductive technologies or divorce or consensual non-monogamy or whatever they want to call polygamy these days, every single, you know, who should be on a child's birth certificate? Do gay people have a right to adopt? I mean, every single conversation was obsessively focused on adults and the children got no voice. The only time the kids were mentioned is if they loved it. That's it. And only as trinkets to affirm what the adults were already doing or wanted to pursue. And like, I understand kids have lost their parents to tragedy all through the human experience, right? Like we have a lot of familiarity with kids losing their parents to tragedy, but these days in the cultural conversation and in the legal conversation, we are now insisting, incentivizing and encouraging mother and father loss and doing it in the name of progress. And that's an injustice. That's something that I think that all adults, especially Christians, have got to stand against. So let's talk about you. When when your parents divorced and, you know, there was, you said that they remained actively involved in your life. So it wasn't quite as tragic, maybe as some children who completely lose a parent. But it was very non-traditional in terms that, you know, your mom had a same-sex partner. So how, how old were you at that time? I was about 11 when they, when my mom partnered with her, um, got together with her partner. And yeah, thankfully I did not suffer the dad deprivation that a lot of kids of divorce suffer, at least, you know, losing contact or having infrequent contact with their non-custodial parent. But instability is a feature of a child's life post-divorce. And that certainly was, you know, the case with me. I do write in the introduction of my book that I would not be who I am without, without both of their involvement. You know, my mom was just, and is just so empathetic and sensitive and really helps me to like love and have compassion for people who disagree. Um, but my dad gave me what a lot of dads give their daughters, which is confidence you know, confidence to walk into a room of men or stand up for myself. And um, so I'm really grateful that even though they split and chose, you know, different paths for their lives after the divorce, that they both remained in my life. The good news is that I always had peace with my mom and dad for the most part. And I don't go into a lot of details about their situations and lives. Um, but I will say that their involvement and connection to me was so important and so critical. Um, and that thankfully I'm not, it's not the story of a girl who lost contact with her father. Um, but what we do at them before us is we catalog the stories of kids who have lost a relationship with their mom or dad. And it's devastating, right? We've, we are probably our website, thembeforeus.com is one of the very few places where you can read the stories of kids who were raised by two moms or two dads, whose other parent was completely cut out of their life. And the kids are not fine. You know, that's what the whole world is saying. It's like, oh, the kids are going to be fine as long as they're safe and loved. No, they're actually not, right? These kids who have lost a relationship with their mom or dad, especially if they are starved of the presence of an opposite sex parent or, you know, they're growing up in a same sex household, they experience what we term as mother hunger or father hunger, where they hunger for the love of their missing mom or dad. If these children are created through reproductive technologies, even if they were raised by heterosexual adults, they struggle with identity issues. Who am I? Where did I come from? Does my 
father know who I am, know that I exist? What do they look like? So we really try to, you know, share the stories of those kids who really were deprived intentionally of a relationship with one or both of their parents. So the lack of two parent two parent environment is is a big threat to a child's well-being what are some of the other threats that we have in the modern day culture that you feel infringe on the rights of children yeah that's a really great question so children have a right to their mother and father i think most of us especially most christians are familiar with a child's right to life. And we have made a lot of advances against abortion because we have stood unflinchingly on that natural right of children. Children also have a right to their mother and father, right? They deserve, they need, and they crave the love of those specific adults, their own mom and their own dad. And there are a multitude of movements and interests that are seeking to separate them from their mom or dad. You know, we go through them one by one in our book. Um, So I'll just give you a quick overview. First of all, I'll say that marriage is a social justice issue for children because it is the only adult relationship that unites the two people to whom children have a natural right. And you'll see in the book and all through our work that we don't make a religious case for marriage. We actually make a human case for marriage. Um, that this is a human institution because this is what human children need. And human children need their mom and dad, regardless of whether you're growing up in Indiana or India, right? All kids need the love of their mom or dad. All kids crave it and all kids are harmed if they lose it, even if they're subsequently adopted by loving parents. So marriage is the first and primary children's rights issue when it comes to their mom and dad. But there's a lot of other issues that are threatening children's rights. You know, chapter five of our book, we devote completely to divorce and how divorce devastates children's lives. You know, it halves their time with their mom or dad and oftentimes results in instability where kids are in a revolving door of new partners or new relationships, mom or dad moving or leaving or finding a new job or or moving out of state or new half siblings or step siblings joining the family and then leaving. And it's really hard on kids. So we talk about how divorce impacts their physical, mental, emotional, psychological, and long-term relational health. And then chapter six, we focus specifically on same-sex parenting. And what is it like for kids to be starved of the complementary benefits of having both a male and female parent? It's really hard. It's really hard on kids. They crave it. They long for it. They, they will try to find the love of that missing parent somehow because they were made for it. And then we talk in chapter seven about sperm and egg donation. I say donation in quotes because nobody's donating anything. This is a marketplace where there are buyers and sellers. People are selling their genetic material and intended parents are purchasing the genetic material for what is often designer children. And these kids don't fare well. Kids created through sperm and egg donation tend to have deep identity struggles, feelings of commodification, that they were disturbed, that money changed hands during their conception. They're concerned about the eugenic aspects that take place in reproductive technologies. Then in chapter eight, we talk all about surrogacy, that surrogacy is not about babies. Surrogacy is about intentional mother loss. Surrogacy is about designer babies on demand shipped worldwide. Surrogacy, this creation of intentionally motherless children, has created these terrible, terrifying, dystopic scenarios for children who are 
for example, being created simply for the purpose of exploitation or where people have baby farms <laughs> where, you know, women are sit, you know, in rows and rows and racks and racks, you know, in, in countries across the world where brown women are just rented as wombs and, you know, where people are creating, you know, dozens and dozens of children all to be raised simply by nannies, you know? So, I mean, it's just like, it really is, this is not about babies. Like surrogacy is, is a marketplace. And then we talk um, about adoption. Let's pause on this for a moment, Katie, yeah. because I'm not as um, deeply familiar with that issue. So, I, I mean, let's say uh, a hypothetical example. So there is a couple that cannot have a child and they're married, you know, they they just and maybe they can't afford the adoption. Sometimes, you know, as you know, probably adoptions can be expensive. So if they take the path of surrogacy, do you think that is bad for the child? That's such a good question. So let's just talk about what surrogacy is, and then we can really answer that question. Surrogacy splices what should be one woman, a mother, into three optional women. So the first one is the genetic mother who contributes the egg. The second one is the birth mother who gestates the child. And the third one is the social mother who raises the baby. The child deserves to have all three in one person. And if you split them up, the child is going to be harmed. If all of these three women are not the same person, the child is harmed. Sometimes in adoption, because of tragedy, the child will lose their birth mother and lose their genetic mother. But that's something that especially across the adoption world these days, we recognize as a loss and we mourn. Adoptive parents like me are equipped to shepherd a child through the different ways that that loss is going to manifest itself over their life. So we know that children of egg donors, for example, who are separated from their genetic mother, suffer identity issues, loss, struggles, feelings of commodification. And we also know that children who we, we know because we've had adoption for a long time that children who lose a relationship with their birth mother often struggle with what psychologists call a primal wound, which is the severing of the bond that they've developed with their birth mother for nine and a half months, right? This is something that crisis pregnancy centers acknowledge because they, they tell these mothers in crisis, bond with your baby, love your baby. You can already start to have an attachment and should, you know, your baby's attaching with you, you should attach with them, Right. And so when a child loses that on the day that they're born, many adoptees report what they call a primal wound, which means they struggle to attach and trust often for decades throughout their life. And the research bears that out. And finally, children deserve a social mother, a woman in their life every day who's raising them. So let's talk about surrogacy, which always involves IVF. IVF is the process of making babies in laboratories, creating them in glass, in vitro, in the glass, right? 7% of these babies are born alive. 7%. Okay. 93% of these babies will never be born alive. That's because the IVF industry is focused on creating the perfect product and often uses these babies as disposable commodities so that the intended parents can get the baby they want, whether that's one that has supposedly healthier genetic markers, the preferred boy or girl. Oftentimes you'll create 15 embryos and you'll freeze 12 of them and plant three of them. Sometimes those three take hold or maybe two take hold. And then the other 12 are in the freezer for 10 years, 20 years, often completely abandoned. Right now we have a million babies on ice in this country because they are surplus or leftover embryos. So this is not a process that is child-friendly. 
okay, most of these children created through these technologies will not live. So let's take a look at your very, very narrow scenario. Okay, let's say that there is a pro-life family that cannot have a child. And first of all, you know, you bring up the example, maybe they can't afford adoption. Well, adoptions are zero to about $25,000 typically, depending on whether you go through the foster care system or you're adopting internationally. Surrogate pregnancies will run you $100,000 to $200,000, depending on whether or not you're finding a white woman in the United States to gestate your child, or whether or not you're going to India to find a brown woman at a discount. Okay, so this is what you're doing. You are shopping for women. You are shopping for their wombs. And this the price tag is extremely high. Big fertility is the most lucrative arm of the medical industry because it's all elective. And in these scenarios, it is the rich who buy and it's the poor who sell. Most surrogacy is banned throughout Europe because they consider it a human rights violation and the purchasing of women. And that's what it is. But let's just say, for example, let's give, let's paint the very, very best case scenario here. Let's say that it's a Christian heterosexual couple that's using their own egg and their own sperm. They create only the number of embryos that they intend to immediate, immediately implant. By the way, this Hardly, I've only heard of one scenario of this happening because it is so cost prohibitive to only create fresh embryos and immediately implant them. Nobody does this. Nobody has the money, okay? Because the failure rate and transfer rate is so high. Why would you spend, however, $100,000 on this for something that could fail so quickly? It's better to have 12 backups in the freezer. But let's say that they create only two embryos that are fresh, implant them in the surrogate, and then immediately those babies or that baby goes home with the genetic parents, okay? So there's the best case scenario for you. Let's say that nobody's even paid. Is that okay? Well, what you're really doing is you're asking that baby to lose the only person that they know on the day that they are born, right? Maybe that baby goes home with their genetic mother and father. But on the day the baby is born, those two adults are two strangers among 7 billion, right? The baby doesn't know who they are. The only person that baby knows on the day they're born is the birth mother, her heartbeat, her smell, her voice, right? And it's her, it's separation from her that causes maternal distress. It's not separation from the genetic parents that the kid doesn't know at all. It's separating from the birth mother that we have studies that show create distress in children. Most moms who have given birth understand this, right? When my second daughter was born, it was a pretty fast and traumatic birth. She was wailing spinning. And it wasn't until they put her on my chest and I started singing that immediately she calmed down because finally she found something that was familiar. Children who lose their birth mother, they have to start from scratch when it comes to developing a bond. We do not put newborns on the chest of random strangers so they can forge a bond. We put them on their mother's chest because they have an existing bond. Couples who use surrogates Really what they're saying is you kid need to sacrifice the only relationship that you have on the day that you're born because we desperately want a baby. I understand you desperately want a baby, but no adult, especially no Christian adult should expect children to sacrifice for what they want. So you have to deal with your infertility in ways that don't force kids to sacrifice anything. And that always means saying no to surrogacy. So then the option for couples like that would be adoption. The option for couples is to resolve their infertility in ways that don't violate children's rights. So thankfully, there are ways to investigate um, 
Napro technology, which resolves the underlying fertility issues much of the, at much and, and results in pregnancy at much higher rates than IVF. Um, but yes, if there is no other path, you have to figure out a way to do this without forcing a kid to sacrifice for you. And that's hard. I'm never going to minimize the tragedy and the heartache of infertility. But then I want you to go read the stories of kids who lost their birth mother, lost, read my book, read chapter seven and eight about the impact of these technologies on kids and say, why is your suffering greater than their suffering? You're the adult. You have the capacity to deal with these challenges. Children do not. Somebody's going to do the hard thing. Either you, the adult who's struggling with your fertility is going to do the hard thing, or you are going to force kids to do a lifelong hard thing. And I think it should be the, the adults that sacrifice, not the kids. Very good point. So let's talk about today's culture and how that is harming our children. And, you know, if they can uh, avoid it in everyday life, they can't avoid it in public school system, which seems to be really indoctrinating our children right now. So what are some of the ways that you propose that we can protect the kids from being harmed by today's culture? Okay, that's such a good question. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to advocate for good policy when it comes to family structure, right? Right now, we are absolutely redefining everything that has to do with marriage and family completely around the desires of adults to the exclusion and the harm of children. So one thing that Then Before Us does is we advocate for good public policy, right? We advocate for mothers and fathers to be on birth certificates. We keep telling the truth about what marriage is. We keep shining a light on the harms of children who are raised in these modern families. Just for your listeners, whenever you hear the word modern family, it's just code for child loss. The child had to lose something they had a right to, to be in that family. We think it should be adults that conform to the rights of children, not children who have to conform to the romantic or familial inclinations of the adults. So the first thing is tell the truth about family, advocate for good public policy, change hearts about this issue. We do that primarily through sharing the stories of kids. We have a story bank on our website that we share. You're going to hear about 120 of their stories in our book if you purchase the book and read it. But then what do we do about kids in school, right? So my co-author, Stacey Manning, and I, if we write another book, it's going to be something like how to raise courageous children, even in a crazy liberal city or even behind enemy lines, because both of us are in wildly progressive cities and they are indoctrinated. They are getting a fire hose of ideology on all of these topics. So you have to talk to your kids first. You have to saturate them with truth and beauty up until age 10. Um, and then you need to, as the parent, introduce these damaging ideas and worldviews with your kids and then explain to them and deconstruct those ideas for them. The world cannot talk to your kids about this first. You have to talk to your kids about this first. Whoever talks to their kids at first about challenging issues, whether it's pornography or abortion or homosexuality or transgenderism or gay marriage, whoever talks to them first, your kid will consider that person to be the expert. You need to be the expert, right? And one of the best ways to be the expert on this is like literally like read our book it will give you everything that you need to know on how to fight back about these damaging ideas around marriage and family. Well, funny story. I, you know, I tried to take your approach with one of my sons. They both, well, one graduated public school and the other one is still in public school. And so I wanted to 
talk to them about things before the school did. So I obviously pondered on my husband (laughs) to talk to them. And it ended up being too soon. Like he was like, I am not even thinking Mm -hmm. about this, dad. So the question is, when is a good time to start talking to them? Yeah. So I also work for an amazing organization called Canavox, and they're all about having these kinds of conversations. First of all, equipping adults to think about these issues, you know, from a natural law perspective. But I'm currently working on developing a teen program to talk with teens about this. But we have a motto over there, and it's better a year too early than five minutes too late. Unfortunately, this culture is forcing us to talk about really challenging topics with kids way before we should have to, but it is better for your kid to be like, I'm not even thinking about this. That is the right time to talk with your kids about this because now when they do hear it a month later or six months later or a year later, they can go, you know what? My mom talked with me about transgender issues. I bet she has something else that I could talk to her about this. Like this happens with my kids all the time, right? I talk to them first and they might go, oh, I've never thought about that. Or, oh my gosh, mom, that's crazy. But six months later, they come back and say, you wouldn't believe what my teacher said. And I'll be like, oh, tell me about that, right? Like they know that I am the person to come to when it comes to challenging issues, right? Or one of them will say, mom, I'm like having a conversation on Instagram about abortion. What were those links that you shared with me earlier? So you are establishing yourself as the expert. And yes, you do need to get to them first. So yeah, you, I, in my opinion, you did it right. That was a win, not a failure. Great point. So let's talk about what do you hope to accomplish with your organization, with your movement, and how can people help? Let's say our listeners are listening to this and they think, wow, that's a great cause. How can, how can they help? Yeah. What we hope to accomplish is a global movement. That's, it's already underway We have had, if you go to our website, you can see our latest accomplishments. You can see our 2022 goals and projects. We are already shaping the conversation in the U.S. and across the globe when it comes to marriage and family issues. I am amazed at the kind of influence that we have been able to have, even though we are super independent, non-institutional, but this approach, right, to looking at every issue through the lens of, of children, it works everywhere. Because first of all, we all understand either how important our own mother and father were to us or the pain of losing our own mother and father. And if we can share the stories of kids, they are the victims when we get these questions wrong. And so we're building this global coalition of adults who are going to protect kids. And it works. It works. Like we have this coalition that includes like Muslims and Mormons and Christians and atheists. We've got A lot of people who identify as gay and lesbian who support us because they understand how important their own mother and father were. We've got people who are divorced or who were children of divorce. It's everybody that recognizes these harms coming together. We're a bit of a ragtag group, in my opinion, is going to not, we can't be defeated um, because we are standing on the natural rights of children. If you want to get involved, I would say go to the website, sign up for our newsletters. If you want to become an expert, read the book. It's on audiobook, ebook, available at Amazon. But if once you read this, first of all, you will be ready and you will be able to answer every rebuttal and every objection. But second of all, you will be filled with fire when it comes to defending the most vulnerable. I'd say, especially if you're a Christian, this is really helpful because you know what the Bible says about marriage and sex. 
This book is going to show you why it's so good and why we will never achieve justice for children unless we can defend God's design for sex and marriage. And it's going to do it in a way that uses a universal language, right? Not quoting Bible verses to your friends. This is something that you can use to talk to everybody about this and make credible arguments for the rights of kids. So yeah, this is, um, we have seen incredible changes in hearts and laws because of this approach. So yeah, get on in here, join the movement. Thank you so much, Katie. We will definitely post the links to your website. Our listeners want to purchase. I do admire the work that you do and, and thank you for championing the rights of kids. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. It is always painful when a child loses a parent through tragedy. However, a separation of children from either of the living parents is the tragedy that we can prevent by simply fulfilling the golden rule, prioritizing the well-being of others, the children in this case, over our own. If you are interested in learning more about Katie's organization and would like to purchase her book, please check the links in the show notes. At World Missions Alliance, we believe that changed lives change lives. If you would like to learn more about what we do or feel specifically called to missions, uh, please check out our website for more information. It's rfwma.org. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Limitless Spirit Podcast. Until next time, I'm Helen Todd. Limitless Spirit Podcast is produced by World Missions Alliance. We believe that changed lives change lives. If you want to see your life transformed by Christ's love, or if you want to help those who are hurting and hopeless and discover your greater purpose in serving Christ through short-term missionary work, check out our website, rfwma.org and find out how to get involved.